Chapter Two of American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter Two Writers of Prose. Part One. It is true of American literature that it can boast no name of commanding genius no dramatist to rank with Shakespeare, no poet to rank with Keats, no novelist to rank with Thackeray. To take names only from our cousins overseas, and yet it displays a high level of talent and a notable richness of achievement. Literature requires a background of history and tradition. More than that, it requires leisure. A new nation spends its energies in the struggle for existence, and not until that existence is assured do its finer minds need to turn to literature for self-expression. As poor Richard puts it, well done is better than well said, and so long as great things are pressing to be done, great men will do their writing on the page of history, and not on papyrus or parchment or paper. So, in the early history of America, the settlers in the new country were too busily employed in fighting for a foothold, in getting food and clothing, in keeping body and soul together, to have any time for the fine arts. Most of the New England divines tried their hands of limping and hobnail verse, but prior to the Revolution, American literature is remarkable only for its aridity, its lack of inspiration, and its portentous dullness. In these respects, it may proudly claim never to have been surpassed in the history of mankind. In fact, American literature, as such, may be said to date from 1809, when Washington Irving gave to the world his inimitable History of New York. It struck a new and wholly original note, with a sureness bespeaking a master's touch. Where did Irving get that touch? That is a question which one asks vainly concerning any master of literature for genius is a thing which no theory can explain it appears in the most unexpected places an obscure corsican lieutenant becomes emperor of france arbiter of europe and one of the three or four really great commanders of history a tinker in bedford county jail writes the greatest allegory in literature and the son of two mediocre players develops into the first figure in american letters conversely genius seldom appears where one would naturally look for it seldom indeed does genius beget genius it expends itself in its work certainly there was no reason to suppose that any child of william irving and sarah sanders would develop genius even of the second order more especially since they had already ten who were just average boys and girls nor did the eleventh who was christened washington show in his youth any glimpse of the eagle's father Born in 1783 in New York City, a delicate child, and one whose life was more than once despaired of, Washington Irving received little formal schooling, but was allowed to amuse himself as he pleased by wandering up and down the Hudson and keeping as much as possible in the open air. It was during these years that he gained the intimate knowledge of the Hudson River Valley, of which he was to make good use later on. He still remained delicate, however, and at the age of twenty was sent to Europe. The era of France and Italy proved to be just what he needed, and he soon developed into a fairly robust man. With health regained, he returned, two years later, to America, and got himself admitted to the bar. Why he should have gone to this trouble is a mystery, for he never really seriously tried to practice law. 
Instead, he was occupying himself with a serial comic history of New York, which grew under his pen into as successful an example of true and sustained humor as our literature possesses. The subject was one exactly suited to Irving's genius, and he allowed his fancy to have free play about the picturesque personalities of Wouter Van Twiller and Wandel Schoolhoven and General Van Puffenberg, in whose very names there is a comic suggestion. When it appeared, in 1809, it took the town by storm. Irving, indeed, had created a legend. The history, supposed to have been written by one Diedrich Knickerbocker, gives to the story of New York just the touch of fancy and symbolism it needed. For all time, New York will remain the Knickerbocker city. The book revealed a genuine master of kindly satire, and established its author's reputation beyond possibility of question. Perhaps the surest proof of its worth is the fact that it is read today as widely and enjoyed as thoroughly as it ever was. It is strange that Irving did not at once adopt letters as a profession, but instead of that he entered his brother's business house, which was in a decaying condition, and to which he devoted nine harassed and anxious years before it finally failed. That failure decided him, and he cast in his lot finally with the fortunes of literature. He was at that time thirty-five years of age, an age at which most men are settled in life, with an established profession and a complacent readiness to drift on into middle age. Rarely has any such choice as Irving's received so prompt and triumphant a vindication, for a year later appeared the sketchbook, with its Rip Van Winkle, its Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and the Spectre Bridegroom, to mention only three of the thirty-three items of its table of contents which proved the author to be not only a humorist of the first order but an accomplished critic essayist and short story writer the publication of this book marked the culmination of his literary career it is his most characteristic and important work and on it and his history his fame rests he lived for forty years thereafter a number of which were spent in spain first as secretary of legation and afterwards as united states minister to that country it was during these years that he gathered the materials for his Life of Columbus, his Conquest of Granada, and his Alhambra, which has been called, with some justice, the Spanish Sketchbook. A tour of the western portion of the United States resulted also in three books, The Adventures of Captain Bonneville, Astoria, and A Tour on the Prairies. His last years were spent at Sunnyside, his home at Terrytown on the Hudson, where he amused himself by writing biographies of Mohammed, of Goldsmith, and of George Washington. All of this was, for the most part, what is called hack work, and his turning to it proves that he himself was aware that his fount of inspiration had run dry. This very fact marks his genius as of the second order. For your real genius, your Shakespeare, or Browning, or Thackeray, or Tolstoy, never runs dry, but finds welling up within him a perpetual and self-renewing stream of inspiration, fed by thought and observation and everyday contact with the world. Irving's closing years were rich in honor and affection, and found him unspoiled and uncorrupted. He was always a shy man, to whom publicity of any kind was most embarrassing, and yet he managed to be on the most intimate of terms with his time, and to possess a wide circle of friends who were devoted to him. Such was the career of America's first successful man of letters, 
for strangely enough he had succeeded in making a good living with his pen more than that his natural and lambent humor his charm and grace of style and a literary power at once broad and genuine had won him a place if not among the crowned heads at least among the princes of literature side by side with goldsmith and addison thackeray called him the first ambassador whom the new world of letters sent to the old and from the very first he identified american literature with purity of life and elevation of character with kindly humor and grace of manner qualities which it has never lost two years after the appearance of the sketch-book another star suddenly flamed out upon the literary horizon and for a time quite eclipsed irving in brilliancy it waned somewhat in later years but though we have come to see that it lacks the purity and gentle beauty of its rival it has still found a place among the brightest in our literary heaven where indeed only one or two of the first magnitude shine j fenimore cooper was like irving a product of new york state his father laying out the site of cooperstown on lake ostego and moving there from new jersey in seventeen ninety when his son was only a year old james as the boy was known was the eleventh of twelve children another instance of a single swan amid a flock of ducklings cooperstown was at that time a mere outpost of civilization in the wilderness and it was in this wilderness that cooper's boyhood was passed and just as irving's boyhood left its impress on his work so did cooper's in even greater degree mighty woods broken only here and there by tiny clearings stretched around the little settlement indians and frontiersmen hunters traders trappers all these were a part of the boy's daily life he grew learned in the lore of the woods he laid up unconsciously the stores from which he was afterwards to draw at the age of eleven he was sent to a private school at albany and three years later entered yale but he had the true woodland spirit he preferred the open air to the lecture room and was so careless in his attendance at classes that in his third year he was dismissed from college there is some question whether this was a blessing or the reverse no doubt a thorough college training would have made cooper incapable of the loose and turgid style which characterizes all his novels but on the other hand he left college to enter the navy and there gained that knowledge of seamanship and of the ocean which makes his sea stories the best of their kind that have ever been written his sea career was cut short just before the opening of the war of eighteen twelve by his marriage to an old tory family who insisted that he resign from the service he did so and entered upon the quiet life of a well-to-do country gentleman for seven or eight years he showed no desire nor aptitude to be anything else he had never written anything for publication had never felt any impulse to do so and perhaps never would have felt such an impulse but for an odd accident tossing aside a dull british novel one day he remarked to his wife that he could easily write a better story himself and she laughingly dared him to try the result was precaution then which no british novel could be duller but cooper finding the work of writing congenial kept at it and the next year saw the publication of the spy the first american novel worthy of the name by mere accident cooper had found his true vein the story of adventure and his true field in the scenes with which he was himself familiar in harvey birch 
the spy he added to the world's gallery of fiction the first of his three great characters the other two being of course long tom coffin and leatherstocking the book was an immediate success and was followed by the pioneers and the pilot both remarkable stories the former visualizing for the first time the life of the forest the latter for the first time the life of the sea let us not forget that cooper was himself a pioneer and blazed the trails which so many of his successors have tried to follow if the trail he made was rough and difficult it at least possesses the merits of vigor and pristine achievement the spy the pioneers and the pilot established cooper's reputation not only in this country but in england and france he became a literary lion with the result that his head never very firmly set upon his shoulders was completely turned he set himself up as a mentor and critic of both continents and while his successive novels continued to be popular he himself became involved in numberless personal controversies which embittered his later years the result of these quarrels was apparent in his work which steadily decreased in merit so that of the thirty-three novels that he wrote not over twelve are at this day worth reading but those twelve paint as no other novelist has ever painted life in the forest and on the ocean and however we may quarrel with his wooden men and women his faults of taste and dreary wastes of description there is about them some intangible quality which compels the interest and grips the imagination of schoolboy and greybeard alike he splashes paint on a great canvas with a whitewashed brush so to speak it will not bear minute examination but at a distance with the right perspective it fairly glows with life no other american novelist has added to fiction three such characters as those we have mentioned into those he breathed the breath of life the supreme achievement of the novelist for seventeen years after the publication of the spy cooper had no considerable american rival then in eighteen thirty seven the publication of a little volume called twice told tales marked the advent of a greater than he no one today seriously questions nathaniel hawthorne's right to first place among american novelists and in the realm of the short story he has only one equal edgar allan poe we shall speak of poe more at length as a poet but it is curious and interesting to contrast these two men contemporaries and the most significant figures in the literature of their country poe an actor's child an outcast fighting in the dark with the balance against him living a tragic life and dying a tragic death leaving to america the purest lyrics and most compelling tales ever produced within her borders hawthorne a direct descendant of the puritans a recluse and a dreamer his delicate genius developing gradually marrying most happily leading an idyllic family life winning success and substantial recognition which grew steadily until the end of his career and which has at least not diminished could any contrast be more complete nathaniel hawthorne was a direct descendant of that william hawthorne who came from england in sixteen thirty with john winthrop in the arabella and was born at Salem, Massachusetts, the family's ancestral home, in 1804. He was a classmate of Longfellow at Bowdoin College, graduating without special distinction, and spending his twelve succeeding years at Salem, living a secluded life in accordance with his abnormally shy and sensitive disposition. 
he was already resolved on the literary life and spent those years in solitary writing the result was a morbid novel fanshawe and a series of short stories none of which attracted especial attention or gave indication of more than average talent not until eighteen thirty seven did he win any measure of success but that year saw the publication of the first series of twice told tales which by their charm and delicacy won him many readers even at that he found the profession of letters so unprofitable that he was glad to accept a position as weigher and gauger at the boston custom house but he lost the place two years later by a change in administration tried for a while living with the transcendentalists at brook farm and finally taking a leap into the unknown married and settled down in the old manse at concord it was a most fortunate step his wife proved a real inspiration and in the months that followed he wrote the second series of twice told tales and mosses from an old manse which marked the culmination of his genius as a teller of tales four years later the political pendulum swung back again and hawthorne was offered the surveyorship of the custom-house at salem accepted it and moved his family back to his old home he held the position for four years completed his first great romance and in eighteen fifty gave to the world the scarlet letter perhaps the most significant and vital novel produced by any american hawthorne had at last found himself a year later came the house of the seven gables and then in quick succession grandfather's chair the wonder book the snow image the blithedale romance and tanglewood tales a queer product of his pen at this time was a life of franklin pierce the democratic candidate for the presidency and when pierce was elected he showed his gratitude by offering hawthorne the consulship at liverpool a lucrative position which Hawthorne accepted and which he held for four years. Two years on the continent followed, and in 1860 he returned home, his health breaking and his mind unsettled, largely by the prospect of the Civil War, into which the country was drifting. He found himself unable to write, failed rapidly, and the end came in the spring of 1864. Of American novelists, Hawthorne alone shows a sustained power and high artistry belonging to the masters of fiction, and yet his novels have not that universal appeal which belongs to the few really great ones of the world. Hawthorne was supremely the interpreter of old New England, a subject of comparatively little interest to other peoples, since old New England was distinguished principally by a narrow spiritual conflict which other peoples find difficult to understand the subject of the scarlet letter is indeed one of universal appeal and is in some form the theme of nearly all great novels but its setting narrowed this appeal and hawthorne's treatment of his theme symbolical rather than simple and concrete narrowed it still further yet with all that it possesses that individual charm and subtlety which is apparent in greater or less degree in all of his imaginative work Contemporary with Hawthorne, and surviving him by a few years, was another novelist who had, in his day, a tremendous reputation, but who is now almost forgotten, William Gilmore Sims. We shall consider him, for he was also a maker of verse, in the next chapter, in connection with his fellow townsmen, Henry Timrod and Paul Hamilton Hayne. So we pause here only to remark that the obscurity which enfolds him is more dense than he deserves. 
and that anyone who likes frontier fiction somewhat in the manner of cooper will enjoy reading the yamasi the best of sims books hawthorne stands so far above the novelists who come after him that one rather hesitates to mention them at all with one or possibly two exceptions the work of none of them gives promise of permanency so far as can be judged at least in looking at work so near that it has no perspective prophesying has always been a risky business and will not be attempted here but whether immortal or not there are some five or six novelists whose work is in some degree significant and who deserve at least passing study harriet beecher stowe is one of these born in eighteen eleven the daughter of lyman beecher and perhaps the most brilliant member of a brilliant family beginning to write while still a child and continuing to do so until the end of her long life mrs stowe's name is nevertheless connected in the public mind with a single book uncle tom's cabin a book which has probably been read by more people than any other ever written by an american author mrs stowe had lived for some years in cincinnati and had visited in kentucky so that she had some surface knowledge of slavery she was of course by birth and breeding an abolitionist and so when early in eighteen fifty one an anti-slavery paper called the national era was started at washington she agreed to furnish a continued story the first chapter appeared in april and the story ran through the year attracting little attention but its publication in book form marked the beginning of an immense popularity and an influence probably greater than that of any other novel ever written it crystallized anti-slavery sentiment it was read all over the world it was dramatized and gave countless thousands their first visualization of the slave traffic that her presentation of it was in many respects untrue has long since been admitted but she was writing a tract and naturally made her case as strong as she could from a literary standpoint too the book is full of faults but it is alive with an emotional sincerity which sweeps everything before it she wrote other books but none of them is read today except as a matter of duty or curiosity and let us pause here to point out that the underlying principle of every great work of art whether a novel or poem or painting or statue is sincerity without sincerity it cannot be great no matter how well it is done and with what care and fidelity and with sincerity it may often attain greatness without perfection of form just as uncle tom's cabin did but to lack sincerity is to lack soul it is a body without a spirit we must refer too to the most distinctive american humorist of the last half century samuel langhorne clemens mark twain born in missouri knocking about from pillar to post in his early years serving as pilot's boy and afterwards as pilot on a mississippi steamboat as printer editor and what not but finally finding himself and making an immense reputation by the publication of a burlesque book of european travel innocence abroad he followed it up with such widely popular stories as tom sawyer huckleberry finn the prince and the pauper and many others in some of which at least there seems to be an element of permanency huckleberry finn indeed has been hailed as the most distinctive work produced in america an estimate which must be accepted with reservations three living novelists have contributed to american letters books of insight and dignity william dean howells george w cable and henry james 
Mr. Howells has devoted himself to careful and painstaking studies of American life, and has occasionally struck a note so true that it has found wide appreciation. The same thing may be said of Mr. Cable's stories of the South, and especially of the Creoles of Louisiana, while Mr. James, perhaps as a result of his long residence abroad, has ranged over a wider field, and has chosen to depict the evolution of character by thought rather than by deed in his early work showing a rare insight. Of the three, he seems most certain of a lasting reputation. Others of less importance have made some special corner of the country theirs, and possess a sort of squatter right over it. To Bret Hart belongs mid-century California, to Mary Noelis, Murphy, the Tennessee Mountains, to James Lane Allen and John Fox, present-day Kentucky, to Mary Johnston, colonial Virginia, to Ellen Glasgow, present-day Virginia, to Stuart Edward White, the great Northwest. Others cultivate a field peculiar to themselves. Frank R. Stockton is whimsically humorous. Edith Wharton cynically dissective. Mary Wilkins Freeman is most at home with rural New England character, and Thomas Nelson Page has done his best work in the South of Reconstruction days. But, of the great mass of fiction being written in America today, little is of value as literature. It is designed for the most part as an amusing occupant for idle hours. Read some of it, by all means, if you enjoy it, since all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. But remember that it is only the sweet meat that comes at the end of the meal, and for sustenance, for the bread and butter of the literary diet, you must read the older books that are worth while. End of chapter 2, part 1. Recording by William Tomko.